In the sleepy Judean village of Bethlehem, a peasant woman gives birth to a son. The boy is named Jesus, which means Savior or Deliverer. And Bethlehem is no impressive metropolis by any means. Yet as every Israelite knows, it is the birthplace and the hometown of the greatest king in Israel's history, King David of the tribe of Judah. This infant boy is a legal descendant of that David. Same tribe, same clan. And now the same birthplace, Bethlehem. Now that means virtually nothing to anybody at the time. Because Israel is under the control of the Roman Empire and there has not been a king on Israel's throne for centuries at this time. So this boy, this descendant of King David is born in abject poverty, in a cattle pen of all places, and to no fanfare excepting a few amped up local shepherds. But before we leave this scene, I'd like to kind of set on the workbench of your mind three ideas, and just let them set there as we work our way through the text before us today. But the first is a son, an infant boy. The second, and related to that, this infant boy is a descendant of King David. And thirdly, God will use this descendant, this boy, this descendant of David, to deliver His people from their sin. Keep these concepts in mind. A son, a descendant of David, whom God will use to deliver His people. Now, have you ever watched a, maybe a movie read a book that starts with a scene from a recent event, and then it goes back in time to tell the longer story leading up to that first scene. I'd like to do that in a sense here together today and leave the newborn Jesus in the Bethlehem stall and go back in time about a thousand years. We shift just a few miles east of Bethlehem, to the valley of Elah in the western foothills of the territory of Judah. And here we pick up the account of Jesus' ancestor, the shepherd boy of David, in 1 Samuel 17. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. So Jesus, born in this Bethlehem, this small village, to of a descendant of King David. And now we go back into David's life here in 1 Samuel chapter 17. These are primitive times. Israel is in the earliest days of her monarchical history under her first king, Saul. The fledgling nation of God's chosen people faces constant military pressure from the Philistines who are situated on the southwest edges of uh, Judah and of uh, Israel. On the coast there, the Mediterranean, as we enter 1 Samuel 17, the Philistines have invaded the bordering tribal lands of Judah, and the armies of Israel and Philistia are positioned along their battle lines facing one another. Now we have before us here in 1 Samuel 17 a very lengthy narrative, and with purposes in view here beyond just this text, we will have no opportunity but to give just a brief overview of the text today. There's so much that's here. But we encounter, first of all, as we come into 1 Samuel 17, Israel's giant-sized challenger. We read verse 1, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, 
And they were gathered at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkot and Azekah in Ephes Damim. A fairly lengthy string along these hills. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. And they drew up in line a battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side. And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. So the Philistine army marches east into the territory of Judah and takes up positions along a string of hills skirting the south side of the valley of Elah. On the north side of this valley, on a hill, is positioned the army of Israel with King Saul at their head. Verse 4, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. That's, that is most likely nine feet, nine inches tall. And there are uh, several other nine-footers recorded in world history. One as late as the 20th century. But this man was a bona fide freak of nature, nine foot nine. And in any account, there are different accounts of the height. I think this is the accurate account, of course. But uh, in any event, no matter who is measuring, this man towered above all others. He was an imposing threat an intimidating warrior in state-of-the-art battle dress. Verse 5, he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, and the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him, carrying approximately 125 to 150 pounds in armor and weaponry. Goliath is a living, breathing, armored tank coming at you. In fact, he's probably taller than a tank. And this intimidating warrior brings a lot of swagger to the scene, and a big mouth as well. Verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now, contests of this nature, representative warfare, were not unknown in the ancient world. We don't know entirely why. Mostly they were just in theory, as will be the case indeed here. But perhaps conceived as a way of discerning the will of the gods and thus sparing unnecessary bloodshed, there were these representative battles at times. Why should everybody die? Let's just have a few. Or maybe just one. But there's a lot at stake here, isn't there? And the thought of an Israelite crossing the field to engage Goliath in hand-to-hand combat, well, that idea struck the Israelites pretty much as you might expect. Verse 11, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. 
So we see Israel's giant-sized oppressor. Then we are introduced, beginning at verse 12, to Israel's undersized deliverer. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite, that's a long-standing clan in Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse. Jesse has eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul as warriors. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. It's not far away, the staging ground of this battle. And he would go back and forth and uh, connect there with his, his brothers. Verse 16, for 40 days, we learn, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening, day after day, standing out and challenging the armies of Israel to come to this battle. Verse 17, and Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Remember that. He asks for a token to be brought as evidence of his brother's well-being. Verse 19, Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. That is, David's three brothers are out there. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. So the Israelite army coming together up against the Philistine army, they're forming ranks, they're moving forward, they're raising the war cry. And verse 21, Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them, behold, as he talked with them, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. We see there in the valley, each army positioned on the hills that skirt the valley, coming together, forming their lines. And this Philistine breaking ranks, in a sense, coming in between the two armies and challenging Israel's army again. And David watches this, observes it, this shepherd boy, here to serve his older brothers. Verse 25, and the men of Israel said, in the Hebrew text that would be best to read, and the men, men of Israel had been saying, this was a conversation that had been going on over many days, and David hears it. They said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel, that is free of taxes. So as the days are passing, Saul is hatching plans to entice an Israelite warrior to battle Goliath. 
There's riches. You almost wonder, I'm not claiming this, but you almost wonder if that was, that was plan one. It's, it's riches. And then plan two, let's throw in his daughter. And then you're free of taxes. But it, somehow, I doubt this all came out right at one moment, but over the days, the soldiers are talking, word is being passed around. You could really be enriched to go into this battle and to defeat Goliath. But Israel's soldiers knew that rewards are useless to dead men. And there were no takers. But David hears this account. Verse 26, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. So the question David asks is the right question. It is a question the soldiers of Israel are, are somewhat avoiding. I mean, they do draw reference to the fact that this man is defying the armies of God, but their emphasis is upon the rewards of defeating Goliath. That's where they're fixated. They put, David puts a different construct on the situation, doesn't he? He asks about the rewards, but he is saying essentially, God gave us this land. We've received this land by the promise of God. He has promised to aid us, to defend us, if we will but trust Him. Who is this Philistine, this worshiper of dead gods to defy the one true and living God? I mean, David's asking some dangerous questions here. And you, you kind of see in verse 27, the soldiers are kind of like, yeah, yeah, David, um, now don't forget, Saul will enrich whoever defeats Goliath. I mean, they don't really want to go there to, yes, this is a defiance of God. Maybe you want to give this a try, David, it seems like they're saying. Now, Eliab, verse 28, his eldest brother heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Only a brother can talk like that <laughs> to another brother. that He impugns his motives and says he's just full of hot air and needs to go back home and do what he's supposed to do. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. David responds, I think respecting his brother, but responds really standing up to him as well. Verse 29, when he says, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? In other words, have I said anything untrue? Is it not the case that this one is defying God? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. Kind of turns his back on his brother and says, you don't want to deal with me here. Let's get back to the issue. He wants to find someone to talk about what's happening in this battle. And how God's honor is being destroyed here between these armies. Verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, 
and he has been a man of war from his youth. This is an impossible mismatch. You are a youth. He has armor, says David, but I have the armor of God. Verse 34, David says to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. This is not your average boy. David's had some experiences out in the field, and he's had opportunity to really learn to use a sling, and he's had opportunity to deal with fear on a level that is quite unique. And he realizes in all of this that he's learned that God is in it. God is enabling him and helping him to do what he could not do in his own strength. David values and emphasizes his unique preparation for this day, not as a warrior, but ironically as a shepherd. Even so, at the end of the day, he says the battle is the Lord's, and he will defeat Goliath. Goliath has defied the living God. The Lord of hosts will contend for the glory of His name. He's uniquely prepared me to this end. If God helped me save sheep from my father's flock, is He not going to help me save His people from this Philistine? This blasphemer? Now David undoubtedly was a courageous young man. But it's not his courage that the narrative emphasizes. It is his faith in the living God. Indeed, faith in the living God is the greatest source of all courage. And he has that faith. He has that confidence. He's put it into practice in his life as a shepherd. And he doesn't really see the distinction here. In this warfare with this giant, I'll take him on because I serve the true and living God and he doesn't. We witness then, as we move on there in verse 37, where this leads. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. There are no other options. Go, let's get this going. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. And we move then in a distinct shift here in the narrative to Israel's overwhelming victory. This giant-sized problem, this undersized deliverer, and an overwhelming victory for God's people. Verse 40, He took His staff in His hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in His shepherd's pouch. His sling was in His hand and He approached the Philistine. Meandering through the valley of Elah 
is a, is a wadi, a, a rocky creek bed. It's dry much of the year, but it carries rainwater during the rainy season, and it's, it's rocky to this day, and he would have been able to quite easily pick up five stones. This was common in that day for warriors to have some stones on them, a little bit, but somewhere between a baseball size and golf ball size, made of flint. They could be lethal if you knew how to use a sling. David had practiced long and hard and was very capable with a sling. He picks up these five stones and he moves toward the Philistine. Verse 41, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? That you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. I come in this one's name. I come with confidence because my faith is in in Him, not in my weaponry. Verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of... And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. This is the point. That there's a God in Israel. All that this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and He will give you into our hand. confidence of faith this is all about the glory of God he's the living God he's the one who decides battles and he will decide this battle verse 48 when the Philistine rose and came drew near to meet David David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine undoubtedly to avoid the Philistine's spear from that distance which was accurate and deadly David takes an aggressive stance running toward him and he put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Many have said, how on earth can you fall forward when you've been hit from the front with a stone? Well, you get that much weight moving at that that speed. It isn't going to stop anything, but what it does is it, it ends his life. At least it knocks him out, and David moves quickly, prevailing, verse 50, over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And the Philistines saw that their champion was dead and they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim. 
as far as Gath, Goliath's hometown, and Ekron, a few miles to the north. So the Philistine army is stunned. It's a, it's a panic as they run back to Gath. And Jesse had asked David, remember that, to bring him a token of his brother's well-being? Well, I doubt, I don't think there's any evidence that David took the head of Goliath back to Jesse, but what a token. Israel was doing pretty well right about then. In fact, there seems to be evidence that he took the head of Goliath uh, to the wall of Jerusalem. We'll look at that in a moment. But David did not, though he did not take that token to Jesse, he nonetheless gave full evidence of the victory of God. The shepherd boy sent on a mission by his father had prevailed and delivered God's people. While Jerusalem was not yet under Israel's control, David likely attached the head of Saul to the wall of the Jebusite fortress, perhaps even then serving notice of future conquest. So, verse 50, David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And Goliath is dead. In verse 55, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now in chapter 16, Saul had already received this information. He may have forgotten it, perhaps even dismissing it as unimportant information. We're not sure why he doesn't know who David is. But it's important information now. If nothing else, to figure out whose family doesn't get taxed anymore. But the key here, I think, in this text, for our purposes and indeed for the narrative, is whose son are you? Whose son are you? Now let's draw back now from this narrative as we move our way forward and and realize, as as some have indicated, that there really are three levels of reading an Old Old Testament narrative. This is helpful as we think through the Old Testament context. There's, first of all, the personal level. Then there's the national level. And as as we move higher, so, so to speak, in overview, is the historical redemptive level. All that God is doing from creation to new creation to redeem a people for His name. So we look at this narrative quite readily on the personal level, don't we? We see much here in David's conquest of Goliath uh, to commend to us. It's a wonderful source of inspiration and instruction on living courageously in the face of stiff opposition. We are encouraged to act in the interest of God's glory no matter the circumstances. To never fear any enemy when God's glory is at stake. To trust the living God in all situations. We're challenged to live by faith in God's power and goodness, not by faith in our own ingenuity and strength, deceit, or wisdom. There are a thousand lessons to learn here on the personal level 
as we look at what David has done and how God has used this young man for his glory. And I I would differ with those who interpret the text and say, forget that personal level. This has nothing to do with David. This has a lot to do with David. Why spend so much time telling us about David? But we do need to move past that and not to allow it to stay there and move then, secondly, to this national level. We must also learn to read the Old Testament narratives in light of God's establishment of His kingdom and His plan to conquer His enemies and ultimately sin. And I think then this narrative runs us directly back to Genesis 3 and verse 15. Remember, after the fall, there is that promise from God That there will be a godly offspring. There will be an ungodly offspring. And there will rise up a representative out of that godly offspring who will crush Satan's head. One boy will be born to crush Satan. Who is that boy? Genesis 3.15 by no means tells us. It simply traces us down two lines, two lineages Uh, the lineage of the godly people, the lineage of the ungodly people, and it works its way ultimately in the book of Genesis to chapter 49. In chapter 49 of Genesis, we read the prophecy in verse 10 that out of the people of Judah will come a king. Kings, in fact, plural, but there will be a um, lineage of kings that trace through Judah. One way God plans to establish His kingdom and conquer sin is through His chosen king. So a son will be born to crush Satan's head. A king will rule who will crush Satan's head. That is how God will bring all of this to redemption. All of this mess with sin. I'll come back to the scene that we originally considered. A son, a king, a deliverer. This is God's plan. But before we move to Bethlehem in that era, we move back here to 1 Samuel 17. And we have to ask the question as we look at God's revealed word, is this not the boy? Is this not the one who has crushed Satan's head, who's delivered us from Goliath and Israel's enemies? Is not David's conquest of Goliath indeed a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15? I would argue that in one small sense it is. In 1 Samuel 16, God anoints His chosen king, the son, a son of Judah, the son of Jesse, David. He is God's chosen ruler. He is a deliverer used by God then to rescue His people. Yet, the defeat is not total, is it? This one that rises from the promise in Genesis 3.15 to crush Satan's head is indicated here as David defeats Goliath. But it's not an entire fulfillment. It's a filling up of the concept, but not yet fulfillment. As time passes, as the prophecies mount, it is clear that David is an installment in the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. His defeat of Goliath then is something of a precursor of what is to come. But David is not himself that son. Years after David is dead, the prophet Isaiah appreciates the prophecies concerning the redemptive plan that runs through King David. 
Yet Isaiah looks further down the road, and he writes in chapter 9, and we know these words well, particularly at this time they are often heard. Connect it with David. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies will raise up this king who in the lineage of David will rule the nations, will rule the earth forevermore. So Isaiah's prophecy now does bring us back to Bethlehem and the birth of Jesus. Do you believe that God is the author of history? I believe He is. And I believe at the core of that story is God's grand scheme through the millennia to save His people from their sin. A people for His name who receive their righteousness from Him and find their eternal joy in Him. And as God works out that grand story, there are key installments along the way which trace out the line of development to their destined fulfillment. As we look back on Old Testament history, we see the characteristic brushstrokes of the grand artist, the God of salvation, as He works out this picture of salvation. And we see, there it is. There's that theme. There's that characteristic stroke. And so we see these two boys, these two giant killers from Bethlehem. And in them we see the outworking of God's great plan of redemption. Coming first in time is David's victory over Goliath, which points to the greater conquest of David's greater son. Take a deep breath. We see this account. We come back to Bethlehem in the birth of Christ. What's the connection? Think of this. It's really fascinating when we work it out in light of God's redemptive purposes. In 1 Samuel 17, Israel is in dire circumstances. There is nothing she can do to rescue herself. Nothing. But God mercifully provides a deliverer to rescue Israel. He's an unlikely hero, just a boy from Bethlehem. But this boy is God's chosen, anointed king, and he stands as Israel's substitute. One boy out in front of the army. He's God's given gift to this nation to represent her. And against all expectations, this young boy conquers the giant. This anointed king wins. And having defeated Goliath, David's victory. What does David do? Run off and sign a book deal and start talking on the talk shows and, and promoting himself and say how great he is and everybody else is jealous of David and wishes where they were like him. Well, probably every soldier was jealous of David and wishes he was like him, but that's not at all what happens. Israel responds and they join in on David's victory. 
David decapitates Goliath and all Israel rejoices. David fells the enemy, but all Israel rushes to join the defeat. Through this single representative standing out in front of the nation, a great victory is won and the whole nation, God's people, is brought into that victory and they participate in it. This isn't our day, but it's pointing us how to think how to perceive the grand story and how to come to this time of Christ's birth and to, and to conceive of it. There is a direct historical relationship between these events and the conquest of David's greater son, Jesus Christ. And it's not difficult to see. Jesus is God's ultimate son and king. The baby born in a cattle stall in Bethlehem is weak and vulnerable. We've sung of that earlier here today. He's not even a vibrant shepherd boy who's learned to take on lions and bears with a sling. He's a vulnerable infant entirely dependent on his mother's milk. And in this abject weakness, Jesus takes on the greatest giant of all. In His humanity, He ultimately takes on the giant of death and sin. Through His miracles, He shows that He is God. And through His miracles, He shows that He has power over death. That the battle belongs to the Lord, and He is the Lord. But ultimately, in His weakness as a man, He lays down His life and dies. He does not merely risk His life. He gives His life. This boy in the manger will one day enter the valley of the shadow of death and He will plead with His Father, remove this cup from Me, yet not My will, but Yours be done. This Son, obedient to His Father, steps forward to take on the ultimate giant of death. So God gives His Son, the Son of David, of the offspring of Judah, to die. And He indeed dies in our place. This representative of God's people, this substitute taking our place, this one who breaks ranks from among us as human beings and stands before the Goliath of death and delivers the final blow. Here, the Son crushes the head of Satan. That's who this boy is in Bethlehem's stall. This second giant killer from Bethlehem. He rises from the dead. He conquers death and sin. And His victory over death and Satan becomes the victory of every person who places his or her faith in Jesus Christ crucified and risen. What army do you want to be on? The Philistines running in fear for their life? Or do you want to be on the army of the people of God who run in the victory of their king and representative? Now, the physical armor has been set aside and the physical weaponry is not the issue, but now it's the ultimate giant of death. And the weapon is the Savior born in Bethlehem who dies on a Roman cross and in that way delivers the death blow, crushing Satan's head. 
So in the series of the events that unfold in the Valley of Elah, we see the characteristic brushstrokes of the divine artist of history. In David's conquest, we see the victory of David's descendant, our ultimate deliverer, Messiah, Jesus. And now by God's grace, we receive His righteous standing and walk in the victory of His ultimate conquest. That conquest has been fully secured. It's not fully complete. But one day, Revelation 20 verses 10 and 14 assures us, one day Satan and death and hell will be thrown into the lake of fire, never to rise again. And on that day, every enemy of God will be forever abolished and removed. On that day, you want to be in God's army. Because then, on that day, when it is all fulfilled, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more disease, no more hunger or weakness or temptation or sin, no more death. Christ has won that victory. And through time, it will be completed fully. It is secured. It has been won. But being brought to its completion. And if you want the strength and the courage in this life to deal with these giants of despair that stalk us, I want to say to you today, you need a story. You need the big story of truth in Jesus Christ, and you need to lock in, to root into that story. We come here today with all of our little stories, all of the little trials and challenges and difficulties and issues of life, all of these things that I've mentioned, the tears and the sorrow and the disease and the hunger and the weakness and the temptation and the sin, we come with all of that in our small stories. And in this culture, in this day, we are trained over and over again to tag into our own story, to get locked into it, to find a way to pull ourselves out of it and to deliver ourselves and to be the people that we should be and to get some things fixed in our life. You're hearing here, you will hear in the words of God in in the Bible a very different way forward. That's to see the larger story that God is working out in the redemption of His people. And to lock into that story. If you aren't in that larger story, you've got no story. It's just the small account of your life winding down and fizzling out into destruction and into sorrow and into worthlessness. But in this representative Jesus Christ, there is a grand story of redemption from death itself. And as we lock into that story, now we become really alive. So I might be talking to somebody here today, really, you've got to get out of your story. You've got to get out of your navel-gazing orientation and think that somehow you're going to get your life fixed by just acting a little bit better, doing things a little bit differently. And you need to come into this story where our souls are redeemed and delivered from self. Delivered from sin. And there's a glorious victory there that we can walk into and enjoy together. Find your center this Christmas season in the prophetic word of the angel to Joseph concerning Virgin Mary. 
she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Savior, Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. There it is. A son, a descendant of David, a deliverer sent by God. And if you are without a personal relationship with this Savior, Jesus Christ, you have no life. You're just fizzling out. Trust Him. He will deliver you from sin. And you will walk in His triumph now and forever. As we link back to His promise to raise up a son to crush Satan's head and trace it through the lineage of King David and his defeat of Goliath to the person of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection and ultimately to King Jesus reigning from Jerusalem on David's throne and turning over that kingdom to the Father where we will live in the presence of God with no more tears, no more sorrow, disease, hunger, weakness, temptation. God's people, can we not rejoice? No more sin and no more death. This giant killer from Bethlehem has conquered. Are you walking in his conquest? Are you one of his people through faith in his saving grace? Come to him. He calls you to trust in his victory over death and sin and Satan. Let's bow for prayer. I pray, Father, that you will grant the gift of faith in your mercy according to your purposes to those who are here today without Christ as Savior those who don't have life in him I pray for those of us who have trusted Christ as our Savior I plead with all of my heart I ask, dear God, that you will deepen us to see our lives not in the narrow, self-centered way of self-reformation, but that we might see your redemptive plan and lock into that greater story. And I pray that it would take us like the shepherds outside Bethlehem into all the world, proclaiming the good news of Christ crucified and risen. We lay these requests at your feet and ask that you, by your Spirit, would deepen us in your truth today. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.